0: One of the things that I respect most about my mom is that she always did something, like in real life, about the things that bothered her. Now, I didn't always appreciate this because it meant, among other things, that every year on Earth Day she would dress me up as a pine tree and we'd go plant saplings together. Uh, And it's actually really challenging to plant a sapling when you are dressed as a tree. Um, But she'd take us to plant the trees because she was concerned about the environment. And at Christmas, she would take us to to make stockings for the local food kitchen because she was concerned about homelessness. To this day, when she sees something wrong, her first instinct is not to complain or to say, you know, someone should do something about that. Her instinct is to do something about that. When you take an issue as, as, as broad and complicated as, as homelessness or the environment, it can be, I think, really easy for us to just default to complaining, to saying, man, someone someone should really do something about that. And, and, and this is a human thing, right? Uh, we, we complain because it gives us some semblance of control in situations where we feel otherwise powerless. You know, I can't control how people drive on Colonial, so I'm going to complain about it to you instead because that makes me feel a little bit less powerless. The trouble is, when we choose to complain, when we choose to make the thing that we do to complain, we actually make ourselves less capable of fixing the real problem. Physiologically, you know, when we complain, it it it, it cuts a path into our brain, like skis through a through a bank of snow, you know. It, it just it it these same neurons fire in the same direction over and over again. And once they've fired that way so many times, they leave a path. And the human brain loves efficiency, and so it will always take the path that was easiest. And not only does does complaining dig this this path in our brains, but this is even scarier. It also there was research that just came out of Stanford. It also When we complain, it shrinks our hippocampus, which is the part of the brain responsible for problem solving. And so the more that we choose to complain, the more we render ourselves useless to actually solve the problem. And this is important because it means what it means is that we could actually move the needle on some problems, right? Maybe my mom isn't the person to solve climate change, but she can plant a seed. She's the right person for that. And you know, maybe my mom isn't the person to, to, to solve homelessness, but she can make a stocking. She's certainly the right person for that. We are in week two of our, of our series on the book of Esther, and, and today we're going to look at this moment in Esther's life when she is confronted with the reality that something needs to be done, but she doesn't feel like she's the right person to do it. And, and, and before we actually do the sermon, before you listen to the sermon, um, I, I want, if you haven't already, please go back and listen to week one first. It is a plot overview and it's really essential for you to have that base before you kind of go into these other sermons. So 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 please just go back and do that. It's, it's online church, guys. No one's going to know what you're watching today. So So please just pause this video and then go watch week one and then you can come back over here. I'll wait. So I hope you enjoyed week one of our Esther series. Um, for the next two weeks, we're going to be camping out in just a few verses in, in chapter four. So, so where are we in terms of our dramatic plot line? Okay, Vashti, queen of Persia, has, sh- has refused to show up to King Xerxes' drunken man party wearing nothing but her royal crown, and she has been deposed. See, you actually do need week one if that sentence seemed completely out of place in the Bible, which it does. Um, and then Esther, the secretly Jewish orphan, Uh, has been, along with all the other young, beautiful virgins in Persia, taken off to be part of this involuntary beauty pageant where each one of them will sleep with the king and then whichever one he's happiest with, she becomes queen. Esther wins the contest and now she is queen of Persia. Meanwhile, her cousin and surrogate father Mordecai works as a palace guard and he has saved the king from an assassination plot, but the king has not yet rewarded him. And then the top royal official, Haman... Remember Haman, he's an Agagite and Agagites hate Jews and Jews hate Agagites and he has talked the king in to signing this death decree against all Jewish people. King doesn't even know it's the Jews that he has sentenced to death against all Jewish people to be carried out in about 11 months. Guys, this book reads like a mashup of The Bachelor and Game of Thrones. If you think the Bible is boring, you gotta maybe take a break from the epistles and come on over to Esther because this is some HBO worthy drama right here. So the death decree, has been written into every language, sent out to all the different provinces in Persia in every corner of the empire. On the 13th day of the month of Adar, people will take up arms to kill, destroy, and annihilate the Jews. And so Mordecai hears about this decree and he is obviously in great distress. And so he puts on sackcloth and ashes which are the traditional garb for someone in mourning and he goes to the palace gate to talk to Esther. So this is Esther chapter four, beginning in verse one. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now at this point, Esther's servants, they see Mordecai, and they report to Esther what he's doing, and she is alarmed, but her first response, her initial response is to, to send him some clothes so that he can pass through the king's gate, right? But, but then we realize, oh, Esther doesn't know about the death decree, And so Mordecai refuses the clothes, and instead he sends one of the eunuchs back with a copy of this decree, and he says, explain this to Esther and tell her she needs to reveal that she's Jewish, she needs to beg the king for our lives. Now we're going to get to the main passage for today in just a sec, but I wanted to, to talk about this part and just pause here for a second to ask what I think is a really important question, why doesn't Esther know about the decree? You know, it says in the text, it went out to every province. It says, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And that would have included the Jews within Susa. So why doesn't Esther know? I recently blew my daughter's little six-year-old brain. Um, She came downstairs with a bag of toy gems. And she said, Mommy, we're going to play this game. So I'm going to take these gems and I'm going to hide them around the house. And then you're going to go around on a treasure hunt and you're going to find them. And I said, no, I'm not going to play that game. And she said, "Why?" And I said, "Because that—that's cleaning. That's literally the definition of cleaning—is what you've just described. I'm I'm not going to—it's—it's going around the house. You leave things, places, and I pick them up and put them away. It's cleaning." And she got real defensive, and she was like, "When do you go around and pick up my things and put them away?" And I said, "Mm -mm. "Did you not leave your tiara on the coffee table last night?" And she's like, "Yeah." And I said, "Where is it now? Do you think?" And she looks down, and she's like. I don't know where it is, you know? And I said, when you take your dirty clothes off and you put them in the laundry basket, how do you think they arrive back into your room clean and in your drawer? She was like, Pff. I mean, it's, it's like she's living in Downton Abbey, right? She just, she, she's so far removed from the tasks of her servants, that would be her father and I, that she doesn't actually know what's happening in her own house. It were, when, when something doesn't affect my life directly, when it doesn't disrupt me, then it's actually really easy to know that it's not happening at all. However, that does not mean that it's okay to not know that it's happening. Esther didn't know about this decree because for the last five years of being queen, she'd gotten wrapped up in all of the little things that are her own affairs, in her own little kingdom. She she could have known, but she didn't. How often is that true of us too? Now, I don't fault Esther entirely, though, because we see that Haman, he took great care to shield the king and queen from the details of this edict. Remember, he, sa- he won't even tell him who he wants to kill. He just says, that certain people. So Haman is intentionally trying to keep this a secret, and I think this is important to mention because it, it, it reveals to us something about the nature of evil. Evil prefers to stay in the dark. It prefers to remain hidden because evil benefits from being hidden. Evil doesn't want me to know about it because if I do, then I might actually do something. You, know, you, take a, you take an issue like racism, for example, and for people whose lives it hasn't touched, it can be really easy for them to think, you know, this is propaganda. This isn't really an issue. You know, I, I, I don't dislike black people. I have black friends. I've I've never seen someone treated differently because of their color. Guys, sometimes the reason we don't see it, and and I'm not saying it's because you're a bad person. I'm saying sometimes the reason we don't see it is because someone is covering our eyes on purpose. And it's a good strategy. You know, if, if the devil can keep injustice a secret, then no one is coming to the rescue. And it's not just racism, so you know, please don't tune me out. There, there are neighbors around us right now who are being crushed under mountains of debt because the pandemic closed down their restaurant. There are women and children who are being trafficked through no choices of their own. There are people that we pass on the street every day who have no meal and no bed to sleep in because of their mental illness. And if, we, if we're not looking for their pain, we won't see it. We won't see their pain unless we're looking for it. Does that make sense? If it doesn't affect me directly, I can miss it. I won't find out by accident. But just because it's not happening to me doesn't mean it's not happening at all. And as Christians, we are not afforded ignorance as an excuse for inaction. Proverbs 24, 11, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. And if you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? It's one of the oldest strategies of the enemy. Don't give him the whole story. Don't give him the whole story. If we had the whole story, maybe Adam and Eve would never have taken that first bite. If Esther had the whole story, she wouldn't have tried to solve a death sentence with a fresh change of clothes. We have to go looking for the truth, because evil will hide itself as long as it possibly can. All right, picking up in verse 11, this is Esther's response to Mordecai asking her to reveal that she's Jewish and beg for the lives of her people. Verse 11, Esther says, all the king's officials And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death. Unless the king extends the golden scepter and spares their lives, but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king." Why does 30 days matter? Well, because Xerxes has already proven himself to have a robust libido. And so if Esther has not seen him for 30 days, that means he is satisfying his appetite elsewhere. So she's basically saying, I I actually, I don't know if I can help with this. I'm out of favor. If I do this, I will most likely die and it won't actually help the Jews anyway. And you know, there's an interesting law this law, if someone appears before the king unsummoned, the law says that they die on the spot. So so, to put it into perspective, death is the default setting. you know it's it's not, you know, sometimes you die. No, it's you always die. Sometimes you live. And because Esther hasn't been summoned to the king for thirty days, her gesture is even more dangerous because think about it if if she's not pleasing to him anymore, then If she does this, she puts herself at his mercy and and all he has to do is let her die so that he can get a shiny new queen in her place. It would be her fault. It would be her own fault. She'd be making it so easy for him and, and she knows that. And so she wants Mordecai to know that too. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Another place, again, remember that's the only, it's the closest anyone comes to saying the name of God in this book. Deliverance will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Another translation reads, and who knows, perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. I recently did a, um, a 23andMe, and my test results said that I have a genetic variant that makes me predisposed to have a worse sense of direction. Now I've known that my whole life, but now I have empirical evidence. Um, I took my daughter a couple weeks ago to, to Lou Gardens um, just to walk around and look at the flowers. I I've, I injured my foot and so I walk at a glacial pace, but you know, it's it's still fun to go out and just be outside and she really likes it there. And in October they do this thing, they they hang up all these little fairy doors to a bunch of different trees and they give you a map and so it's like a hunt and the kids get to like hunt for fairy doors and it's, it's really cute. So we're there and we're hunting for fairy doors and, and so we're walking and walking and walking and, and at one point I realized, yeah, I don't have any idea where we are right now, and and to be clear, I'm I'm currently holding the map, but that mattered not announced, and so I look at my watch. It's five o'clock. I'm like, well, are we got to make our way back. So, um, we start walking back toward the the visitor center, the visitor center building. But between my uh, injured foot and my inability to rotate three D maps in my head, it took us like half an hour to get there. So we we get there around half an hour, and I go to open the door, and it's locked. And then I look inside, and it's completely dark in there and I realize, oh, this place closes at five o'clock and we're locked in. And so, you know, and and I can, I'm like looking into the parking lot and I see my red Nissan, which is the only car in this empty parking lot. They they knew we were in here, but but they locked us anyway and say, I said, Ember, I'm sorry, but I think we're locked in. Um, To which she replies, no, we're gonna have to sleep in the bushes and eat berries and use, and use, and use flowers for toys. By the way, I love that flowers were, I love that toys were actually upgraded to like an essential need um, in this scenario. So, so I look at the map and I'm like, you know, it's okay. We're, we're going to find another way out. And so we, we walk around and I go to the first place that looks like an exit. And it was, but it was this gate that was padlocked and it was about six feet tall and it had spikes at the top. So I said, pass. And Ember, who unfortunately is a warrior like me, is getting more and more anxious. And so I am feigning calmness. And I'm like, oh, we're good, baby. We're just gonna find another way out. So we walk a little further and we come this time to another fence. It's about five feet, but it's chain link. So it is scalable. And so I climb up first and and go over and then she climbs up and I grab her at the top and, and, and set her down. Um, and as soon as we're out, she is on top of the world. I mean, she wants to call daddy and she wants to call all her friends and tell them about how we escaped from Lou Gardens. Now, by the way, I have a friend named Julia, and she has uh, two little boys and a, a newish baby girl. And, and earlier that day, I'd offered to take her two boys with me and Ember to Lou Gardens uh, so that she could get a little downtime, you know, just her and the baby. And I am so glad, in retrospect, that she turned me down because I can, I can see the headline, right? Florida woman. <laughs> Actually, no, no. Florida preacher found scaling fence of private property with two children who are not her own. Anyway, I, I tell you this story because one of the hardest parts of having rheumatoid arthritis is that my daughter has only ever seen the weakest version of me. You know, I, I used to do things. I, I did martial arts for years. I, I played rugby in college and I loved those things, but I don't talk about them because I don't want to be like that 48-year-old guy who's still talking about the championship that he won in high school. But, but I hate that she only sees me at my worst. But when... I went over that gate and she grabbed onto me, I was an instant superhero. And it was a, it was a gift. It was a gift to me. And it was a gift to her too, to you know, see that people can still do hard things even when they don't feel equipped. And I don't think I could have gotten that gift anywhere else. I mean, I'm certainly not looking for fences to climb voluntarily, so, so perhaps I was made spatially unintelligent for such a time as this. Now I know that what you're going through right now is a lot harder than finding yourselves locked in Lou Gardens with an injured foot. It's, it's illness, it's unemployment, it's depression, it's loss, and, and, and I don't know why you're here, but what I do know is that it doesn't surprise God that you are. This is where he has you, and I don't know why. One of the most startling things for the Hebrew people taken from Jerusalem in the exile to Babylon was, was that suddenly God told them to pray for Babylon. To the prophet Jeremiah, he says, seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its peace, you will find your peace. Jeremiah 29, 7. Pray for Babylon not Jerusalem pray for Babylon bless Babylon be a blessing to the place that i have you don't just do nothing and wait to get back to the promised land sometimes i find myself treating this season of our lives like a waiting room to the promised land you know when we get back to our jobs our friends our restaurants our dates our churches that's when life really starts again but guys this these circumstances are not The detour of your life. God is not surprised by where you are. He's not up there, you know, stroking his Jesus beard saying, Well, you know, I I could really use him if he was the CEO, or, you know, I could really use her if she wasn't home with the kids, or I could really use him when he graduates. This, This isn't your detour. This is exactly where God has you right now. And you might feel like, No, this is not where God has led me to, because if he did, he's the worst. Listen, Esther did not feel like God had led her to her circumstances either, I promise you. She was orphaned and at 14 forced into a harem where she would undoubtedly lose her virginity to a 40-year-old man. And and, and for most of those girls, that wasn't even the worst of it. Because at that time in history, they, they were just deflowered concubines and they can never move on. No, no man is allowed by law to sleep with the king's concubine. And so they could never marry. They could never have families. They, they, they were stuck here forever. Always just the one that wasn't picked. This was not the life that these girls had hoped for. And, and Mordecai, I mean, Esther is his baby girl. He has raised her as his own. He's, and he has to give her up to this madness. I mean, they just wanted to live their lives they just wanted to have their own families. They just wanted to you know, sell their marmalade. I don't, I don't know what people eat in 5th century Persia. But, but nobody in the story felt like God was leading them to this moment, and yet he was. He was leading them to these circumstances, these positions. He was using the ordinary choices of ordinary men to orchestrate this extraordinary rescue. Now, was this God's plan A all along? Or was this only his way of redeeming his plan that people kept messing up over and over again. I I don't know. That's a sermon for another day. But what I do know is that asking God why you are here rarely gets an answer from heaven. But asking him what you can do now that you are, that might just loosen the lips of the Holy Spirit. Because God always sends instructions to people who say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. This, for whatever reason, is our Babylon. And we can complain about it night and day until we render ourselves useless to change anything. Or we can make a stocking. We can plant a seed. We can bless this place while we wait. I don't know why God has you here but now that you are, what good can you do? How can you bless this Babylon? How can you bring peace to the Babylon of American politics? Maybe you were made extraordinarily patient for such a time as this. How can you bring peace to the Babylon of your crumbling marriage? Perhaps you were made her husband for such a time as this. How can you bring peace to your hostile work environment? Perhaps you were made winsome for such a time as this. How can you bring peace to your dysfunctional family? Perhaps you were made a regroup leader for such a time as this. How can you bring peace to the Babylon of sickness and death? Perhaps you were made their mom for such a time as this. How can all of us bring peace to the Babylon of isolation that is this pandemic. Guys, we're not going to do anybody any good, including ourselves, if we sit around saying, gosh, I wish someone would do something about that. I wish the church was open. I wish someone would invite me to a small group. I wish someone would pray for me. Guys, God wants someone to do those things. God wants someone to pray. God wants someone to, to lead a small group. He wants someone to host a house church. But perhaps that someone is you. Perhaps You were made lonely for such a time as this. Perhaps you were made the manager. Perhaps you were made sick. Perhaps you were made his brother. Now, now you don't carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. Mordecai points out, you know, if you don't do this, deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your household will miss out. So that means there is a certain blessing that you can only get here and nowhere else. Now God will accomplish his purposes even if you don't have that hard conversation, even if you don't step up to leadership, even if, you, even if you don't rock the boat, even if you don't stick up for that person, if you don't take the risk, God will still accomplish his purposes. He's God. He will still do it. But there is a blessing that you can only get here and nowhere else. Something you can learn here and nowhere else. Confidence you can gain here and nowhere else. Trust to be received here and nowhere else? Do you, feel, do you feel like something's missing in your life? God wants to fill that space, but perhaps he wants to fill it here in these exact circumstances, these terrible, overwhelming, frightening circumstances he's been waiting all along. And listen, it's okay for you to grieve what might have been, not saying you can't do that. I'm sure Esther grieved. God God isn't asking you to love the place he has you. He's asking you to bless it. And those are very different things. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve the path you wanted, the job, the marriage, the love, the talent. God, God isn't mad at your broken heart. Jesus grieved. And so you'll be in good company. Jesus grieved the death of his friend. Jesus grieved the death that he was asked to die by his own father so that we could live. He prayed, Dad, th- please let this cup pass from me. This is not the place that I wanted to end up. But I know it's the place that you've asked me to be. And so I will bless this savage ground. God's providence won't always lead us to where we want to go, but it will always lead us to where we need to be. It is not a coincidence that you're here and, and and you can fight it and you can grieve it and you can say no to it even, but you cannot pretend that it's an accident. I mean, if Esther teaches us anything, it's that we should be suspicious of a coincidence. What a coincidence that Esther was Jewish. What a coincidence that Mordecai was at the gate to hear the plot. You know, what what a coincidence the king couldn't sleep, what a coincidence that Haman built a gallows. Guys, why is it? That every time something goes wrong, God gets the blame. But every time it goes right, coincidence gets all the credit. It's not a coincidence. God has you here for a reason. I, I don't know why. And I know you're feeling like, God, I am not the right person for this. Please send someone else. Listen, he will if you say no. But there is something that he wants to give you here that he can't give you anywhere else. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you hold all things together in the palm of your hand. Thank you that you are not surprised by the things that are coming at us. Thank you that you have a plan and you are always working to redeem your people, to redeem the mistakes that we've made. Lord, help us to hold on to that hope in the moments that we feel great despair, in the moments that we feel ill-equipped, remind us, Lord, that you have put us here for a reason. You have given us the skill sets, the influence, the friend circles. You've given us the positions that we have so that we might affect change for your kingdom. And, Lord, that can look very different from person to person. It's not always this profound moment where we're asked to give our lives for our people. Sometimes it's just being there for someone who's in pain. Sometimes it's just being kind to someone who disagrees. Sometimes it's being present for your kids. Sometimes it's just getting on your knees and praying for all the things that we'd rather complain about. God help us to remember that we have influence that you've given it to us and you've given it to us for a reason. Lord, help us in the moments when we have to grieve what might have been and give us the strength to move forward in what is. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.